Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Vintage Motocross Radio. I'm your host, Joe Abadi. Today's show is brought to you by Vintco. Keep the ride going. Amsoil, the first in synthetic oil since 1973. Preston Petty Products, the legend continues. And of course, Vintage Motocross Q&A. Please join me every Wednesday at 6 p.m. on Facebook. My guest this morning is an eight-time overall winner at the Baja 500 and 1000. He's won three medals in international six-day Enduros throughout Europe, including a gold in Italy. He's an African Rally champion, a Dakar Rally veteran, and an AMA Hall of Fame inductee. His executive leadership has helped companies such as KTM, Husqvarna, BMW, Gas Gas, and Zero Motorcycles. This morning, I'd like to welcome my guest, Mr. Scott Harden. Scott, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Joe. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Hey, I want to, uh, want to ask you, when I, when I read about your overall, uh, overall wins in Baja, you were, you were just 21 years old, and you have eight overalls. Now, how many were in the 1,000? How many were in the 500? So, um, you know, I only list overalls on my resume because, uh, you know, my class wins are great and everything, but I signed up for winning overall in Baja mm-hmm. in any of the major off-road races I did because that was kind of what desert racing was about, being the fastest overall vehicle that day as far as I was concerned. So I won my classes several times, but I don't necessarily list them on my resume. All I do is list overalls. So I've won the Baja 500 three times. I've won the uh, Baja 1000 twice overall. I've won uh, the uh, Mexicali 300 and San Felipe overall. And I'm missing some one other event in there. escaping my mind, but uh, I got two Parker overalls in score competition. And then, of course, four Las Vegas 400 overalls and you know, those were all the big events back in the day, you know, yeah. that, uh, the 70s and 80s when, like I refer to as a golden age of desert racing. Uh, that's when, you know, things were really big and there was a lot of entries and a lot of great competition. Now, how many people would be entered in, in those 500s or 1000s? Well, back then, you know, it was different then. This was before the era of the bet classes and over 40 classes and all of that. Mm-hmm. They basically just had an open class a 250 class and a 125 class and uh the open pro entry would draw 60 70 entries in that uh some of the races well over 100 to 150 entries uh in some of the bigger races in the motorcycle divisions um you know nowadays they're lucky if they hit uh, 30 or you know 40 entries and they're divided amongst eight or nine or ten different classes uh, including sport, including amateurs and sportsmen and everything, we didn't have that back then. It was all that, and of course, back then, that was the era of two-man teams. You know, we we just rode each rider rode half the race essentially, and uh, there wasn't these three and four and five and six-man teams that were coming together to break it up like a, a motocross race. Well, while we're on that subject, Scott, why don't you talk about some of your partners in those races? Who were they? Well, I mean, you know, I I was. Benefit, uh, had the benefit of riding with a lot of the best in the sport. Uh, Larry Rossler, Jack Johnson, Rolf Tiblin, mm. uh, AC Bakken, 
uh, Gar Sweet, Lynn Kurt Pfeiffer. Jeez, uh, I just, I'm, I'm, my, my name is Chris Blaze, Kellen Walsh. I wrote with them in the 2004 Baja 1000. I mean, I wrote with several different generations of writers and many of the top, but the number one guy for me was Brent Wallingsford. Yes. You, um, we, we were brought together as a team at Husqvarna in 77. We could refer to ourselves as the B team. You know, they had the A team of LR and Jack. We had called ourselves the B team, but, uh, you know, we got on a tear there and starting with the 77 Baja 1000 and leading through the following year and won five score events overall in a row, which was a record at the time. I don't know. It may still be a record. I'm not sure, but for consecutive overalls, it was a record at the time. Hey, Scott, let's, let's talk about the bikes a little bit. You know, I know a lot of my listeners and, and of course, myself, where a lot of motocross guys, we know about preparing a bike for a motocross race in 40 minutes or whatever it is, five laps. But you're going hundreds of miles through, through a desert for days on end. How exactly do you prepare that bike differently than anything else? Well, I mean, I'm sure uh, <laughs> your listeners are appreciate because mostly they all grew up through that area. Yeah. The difference between now and then is light years. You know, uh, the motorcycles today are so well built and things that we take for granted now were things that we agonized over then. I mean, in races like that, often in the beginning days, you'd carry a spare chain and on the bike and you would carry spare cables to, you know, for the controls and, uh, and you know, just all sorts of things on and on and on. But, mm-hmm. you know, I rode for Team Husqvarna and at the time, Huskies were the best. Uh, and uh, they, they, starting with the Malcolm Smith and Jay and Roberts and that era and the team structure that they had put in place and the way they went about it, the preparation, you know, riding one of the factory bikes down there was really special. Now, the factory bikes weren't, uh, you know, weren't came out of crates. They were just uh, regular uh, assembly bikes. They could have been just as easily gone to a dealership. Hmm. There was nothing, you know, special about them except that they were taken out completely disassembled. Uh, the motors were blueprinted. A lot of little things were done, things that for, for reliability, longevity, durability, uh, little tricks that the team had learned over the years. I was real fortunate that I got to race bikes prepared by Dean Goldsmith and Niles Ussery, who were two of the best at their business back then. And they would go through and just set them up. I mean, when you got on one of those bikes uh, down there a few days before the event, we'd always go down and break them in and ride the race bikes before the actual races Yes. to do the final testing, setup, suspension settings, jetting mainly just to make sure they wouldn't seize. And that was a big, big issue. Just trying to keep them from seizing. This was the two strokes back then. But, you know, every time you rode one of those, you really felt like you were on something special. It just seemed to work. Everything on it just seemed to work a little bit better than, you know, the bikes, your own bikes at home that you prepped and everything. Yeah seemed a little bit smoother they vibrated a little bit less the power delivery was a little bit better the suspensions a little bit better. everything just worked a little bit better at, on those things as a youngster uh scott you grew up in las vegas and hunting trips and and things like that were a big thing in your family and that's where you really got started on on your first mini bike so was was that your first experience with with riding was the mini bike on the hunting trips as a kid 
Yeah, you know, I, you know, I was very fortunate. My family, uh, I was raised by my grandparents, first of all. Mm-hmm. And uh, they grew up through the Depression and everything. So they went hunting for food uh, you know, every year. We deer hunted, we quail hunted, dove hunted, pig hunted, you name it. Fishing, I mean, for them it was about putting meat on the table. And uh, growing up through that was something I really cherished being able to do. But I remember distinctly about, uh, and we, we did that from the time I was seven years old and, and uh, on. But about the time I turned 10 or 11, some guy showed up in camp with a tote goat. Yeah. And I don't know how many of your listeners would know what a tote goat is. Yeah. But a tote goat was basically just a, you know, Briggs and Stratton motor inside a solid, solid, rigid frame vehicle. And it had, it was designed to help you haul the deer carcass out wherever you shot it and get it back to camp or get it out to a truck or whatever. But they had one of those, and once I saw it, and they let me ride it once, that was pretty much it. That's all I did for the, you know, we'd go up there, I'd ride it all day long. Uh, and, you know, they, uh, they couldn't keep me off the darn thing, and that's where it all got started. So, how long after the mini bike experience did you get a full-size bike? And, I mean, you lived out there near the desert, so did you see some desert races? And how, you know, what was the introduction like for you on a bigger bike and and being in the desert area? Well, you know, I grew up in Vegas, born and raised there. and We lived out in the country. We lived on a dairy farm, actually. Okay. Out, way out in the country. And, I mean, it was a long ways just into town. Back in the 60s and early 70s, you know, it's nothing like it is now. There was the Strip in downtown Las Vegas. But once you left those areas, it got pretty remote. And out where I lived, we were 10 miles from the nearest uh, market, you know, grocery store where we live so we had desert all around us and plenty of opportunity to ride we were four miles my house my home where i grew up was located four miles from the finish line of barstow to vegas there was a local motocross track at the mesa whitney mesa that a lot of people raced at and we'd go over and watch those races and there was even desert races held within just a few miles of our house european scrambles and things like that. And then, of course, the Mint 400 and Snore 250 were big races at that time. And as kids, we would ride our bikes over there. I had the mini bike, you know, from the time I was 10 or 11. When I turned 14, I got a Suzuki TS-125 Duster. Yes. And, uh, you know, I that was I talked my parents into getting that. That was my basic transportation to get around town and to do things. And then, of course... I started going out to the races, and of course, I stripped all the lights off of it and everything, and uh, basically, uh, you know, tried to turn it into a desert bike, and and uh, that was actually that actually became my first race bike. I mean, I stuck out to a race. A friend, an older friend of mine, took me to a race in 1971, and uh, without my while my parents were out of town, <laughs> and uh, they came home and found out I raced, and that was a that was. A, I was grounded for quite a while after that, but once they realized that that's what I wanted to do, they said, okay, let's do it, but if you're going to do it, we're going to take you, and we're going to be there to pick up the pieces, so uh, it was a hard thing for my grandmother to wrap her mind around. Uh, she she was sure I was going to kill myself on that thing. Well, yeah, they grandparents, parents, I mean, they all, you all have that sense of uh, 
what's the kid doing? And it was so new back then that uh, I, I'm sure it was quite a harrowing experience. You know, Scott, you mentioned, you know, when we, when we opened up the conversation that you rode Husqvarna, that it was such a great, reliable bike. How, how did you go from that Suzuki Duster to getting a, a sponsorship with Husqvarna? How did that all take place? Well, the, the seeds were planted when I saw it on any Sunday, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that all happened, you know. That all, I got that duster, and that movie came out, and I rode that bike every summer. That summer, I rode that bike through the desert to the, the movie theater, and I would sit there and watch, go to the first matinee, and, and this before it ended, I'd go and hide in the bathroom. <laughs> And then I'd sneak back out and watch it a second time. I think my record was three times in a row. <laughs> and then, and I would do this a couple times a week. And then I would ride the bike home. And so I knew, you know, that Husqvarna was what I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to do everything that Malcolm did in the movie. It's kind of a blueprint for me. It's crazy how it all worked out. And, how I got to be good friends with Malcolm later on and actually do races with him as a teammate and everything else down the road and work with him as a dealership and go to Africa together and travel the world lately, uh, different projects. But, you know, 14-year-old kid, I couldn't have imagined that happening. But, you know, that it, that was kind of the blueprint. I started racing local races. I started doing well. I climbed through the ranks. I got my expert card. The first year of full competition, I won the 125 number one plate. I moved up to the 250 class. I started on the 250 class with a full ride on a Suzuki TM250, the little the little brother to the TM400. Yeah. And I don't know why that the bike has such a bad reputation. I mean, the TM250 was actually a pretty good bike. Mm-hmm. But I rode that for a few months, and then we ended up going down and buying a Husqvarna because I wanted to be part of Husqvarna and I wanted to ride out of my friend Casey Folk's shop in, in Vegas. It was all connected together. Casey was a big influence on me and a big mentor of mine and uh, literally brought me up, raised me in his garage, helped me, showing me how to race and how to prepare and everything. But he was also, as a Husky dealer, was kind of my biggest ambassador back to Husky that they should be helping me. And I ended up getting a local support ride and, you know, and I went out there and towed the rope and entered, found outside sponsors and entered big races and started, you know, eventually climbing that ladder one race after another until mm-hmm. finally the opening came. You know, Husky had, at the big races, they would enter two factory teams, two open bikes, so that they doubled their chances of winning. If one bike had a problem or one, you know, technical or rider problem, well, then the other one might not, and they could win, and that's how they dominated that period of racing for so long, was through that strategy. So that meant there were four openings available, and I needed to get one of those, and in 77, after doing it on a support level for the first few years, I finally got the shot with Brent, and the rest was history. Yeah, and in 77, you were 21 years old, and that's when you won your, your first Baja race. Yeah, actually, our first race together was the Baja 500, and I got second. We got second overall, all at it behind LR and Jack, and we were just really happy to do that. So we went one two there, and then we won the 1000, and then the following year the Parker two Parker 400s back to back, Mexicali 300, the Baja 500, and all of that in '78. And that was our first 500 win as well. So in a very short period of time. 
in about a year's period of time there, we won practically every major off-road race except the Las Vegas 400, and that took us a little bit longer to win that because we kept getting beat at it by LR and Jack, and it would always come down to just a matter of minutes. And I mean a matter of minutes, after, a couple of minutes after 10 hours of racing. Hmm is how it would come down. So, I mean, it was tough competition back then. How long does it take to, how long does it take to finish a race? Well, look, I mean, I'm, I'm sure one is, of course, twice the length of the other, but how long does it take to finish uh, a 500 race, and how long does it take to finish a 1,000-mile race? Well, I mean, it varies depending upon the route that they've selected, the length of the course. You know, sometimes the 1,000 would only be a thousand kilometer race. They started changing it over to that in the mid seventies. And so that was only 650 miles, but they would make it a lot rougher to make up for it. Okay. And so it depends. I mean, some of the races were 15 hours, 16 hours long, um, you know, eight hours minimum for, you know, the 500, seven hours to eight hours minimum. For the 500, I think the, the better way to look at it is our average speeds. You know, we averaged somewhere between 50 and 60 miles per hour for those races over the course of the event. And uh, for the longest time, we held the record for the fastest time at the 500 at 58 miles an hour or something like that, average speed. Hmm. So, you know, if you think about that, you know, all those times when you're in the tight technical stuff doing 20 and 30 miles an hour. Well, that means that there's other places where you're doing 70, 90, and 100 yeah. to get that average back up. Hmm. And so, you know, I think it's the average speed that really matters. But they were long races. And remember, back then it was just two man teams. We yeah. each rode half the race. You know, you, you were also successful not only in, in the Baja and the off-road events, you were a, a medalist in the international six-day Enduros. You won a gold medal in Italy, silver in France, bronze in Czech Republic. What part of the six-day events uh, did it take you some time to get used to? What was, what was so much different? I mean, we, we know the difference, but what, what were some things maybe you liked or disliked and that were so different from, from your desert days? I think the main thing was just riding in mud and learning how to ride in trees and tight technical conditions. You know, I'm from the desert. And when I started doing the qualifiers and stuff in 80, 81 and 82, I had to learn how to ride in mud. And that was a real struggle at first. I had to, I, I got some great coaching from guys like Frank Gallo and Kevin Lavoie and stuff, coaching on the trail, a little bit of tough love when I was floundering there and some of the grease up at Trask Mountain and up in Bellingham. They uh, really, you know, gave me some good pointers and tips, and I just persevered and adapted. And you know, after I'd won Baja and, and all the other major off-road races, I, you know, going, again going back to on any Sunday, you know, well, I was I had become literally the lone dress caught across Dry Lake Chapala at some point in my career, even though I never raced across that section. I ended up I did win the thousand. And so I wanted to do the six days deal, just like Malcolm had done. Were you still on husky? Were you still on husky at that point, Scott? No, I was still on husky, and they were supporting me. They helped me adapt and supported me through that. You know, of course, I was winning a lot of races at that point, and I had a lot of leverage, and so they helped me through that period. And you know, I adapted and learned, and then of course all the the, the competition in Europe and just how great the European riders were. I mean. I couldn't even hold a candle to the top guys over there, you know, 
if I was lucky to get, you know, in 30th in class at the, at six days, if I was riding really well, I would be up amongst the top Americans, but I would be way back in class. You know, I think the biggest uh, accomplishment that we had back then was I was selected for the U.S. trophy team in 82 in Czechoslovakia. That was the year that we got, that we should have won the, the world trophy. Mm -hmm. We'd, uh, beat the Czech team that year, uh, mainly due to that we just had more riders finished than they did. But uh, they had a rider that rode under protest for a week and should have been thrown out of the event. But uh, uh, they decided to keep him in the event, and we ended up getting second in the world, which at the time was the highest finishing U.S. trophy team ever. And it wasn't until just a few years ago that we actually won the world trophy. But Do you 82, I was, uh, 82, I was on that team, and very proud of that accomplishment but it, I also saw the politics that were involved in the racing over there and we boycotted the uh, trophy presentation as a result and and that, and I decided never to go back I didn't want to go back to six days do you so do you recall do, do you recall the writer who was protested and who should have been thrown out do you remember that well it was a it was the 80 cc rider you remember back then they had 80 cc uh, classes yeah. uh, at six days and he had blown a motor on day one and uh, he had pulled into a barn off the side of the trail and they changed the motor and at that time in the event the uh, powerhouses were the Swedish, the Czech and the uh, Italian teams and one of those three were going to win six days. It was foregone conclusion. It was definitely going to be one of those teams. Well, the Swedes protested. They had photos and everything of the thing. Uh, the ADCC rider continued to ride while they waited to have a jury meeting to make decide the ultimate fate of the rider. As things progressed, the Swedes, it was one of the toughest six days on record, rained every day. One of, other than Dakar was absolutely the toughest thing I'd ever done on the motorcycle. Just six days of pure misery <laughs> i mean soaked to the bone for the moment you left the paddock until you got done that day in some of the toughest trail conditions i've ever seen in six days but um as the attrition took place and people dropped out it ended up this weird thing ended up having the american team stayed intact all the way until day five we hadn't dropped a rider and the uh the the uh check team had, was down to five riders and should have only had four left because the guy should have been disqualified but was still riding under protest. We lost a rider on day five, which put us equal to them in terms of the number of riders on the course, but they still should have had that fourth guy disqualified. And that night after the fifth day is when the jury meeting was held to decide his fate. And they kept him in. It went down to a 7-7 vote amongst the jury members, the Eastern Bloc countries all voting in favor of keeping the Czech rider in. Yeah. The Western Bloc countries uh, all deciding to keep to, to, to disqualify him. Joining the Eastern Bloc countries were the French team. Uh, so, thank you, France. <laughs> Scott, let and me, let me ask... down to the jury foreman, who was an Englishman. Yeah. And he voted. We thought we would, would vote in our favor, but he voted in favor of the... Uh, the uh, Czech team, which we found out later that the jury foreman, his number one client was Jawa. 
Uh-huh. He made aftermarket products on parts for Jawa, <laughs> so we were screwed. That that no was politics. that yeah. was the question. One six days that year. Yeah, but. that that was my question. That was just about to come up from this was uh, uh, on that jury. Who was from what country and what bike were they looking to see as far as a manufacturer winning that class? Um, well, it was in Czech. First of all, the events in Czechoslovakia. Right. There were hundreds. I'd never seen at the final uh, motocross special test. There were well over a hundred thousand people there that day. Hmm. I'd never seen so many people in one place in all my life. It was the abs. It was absolutely the biggest thing I'd ever seen at the final motocross. So if he, <laughs> I keep telling the guys, even if they hadn't aborted him out, if they kept him in. One of us would have been shot or killed during the final day just to make sure that they won because, <laughs> you know, they weren't going to about to let uh, an American team win in an Eastern Bloc country yeah. during the Cold War behind the Iron Curtain in front of everybody else. It just wasn't going to happen. So um, that was a big lesson, and you know, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I went through it. I was really proud of the job that we did. And it was Mike Melton, Terry Cunningham, Eddie Lojack. Me, Wally Wilson, and uh, gosh, Mark Hyde okay. were the six all on Huskies. Were the six trophy team members. Dick Burleson was our team manager, and uh, I was really proud of it. You know, we we were the top finishing U.S. trophy team until just recently when we got sick. We finally won it and broke through. I was really happy to see that finally happen. In, in 82, you were an open-class champion in an event called the National Reliability Series. What, what, was, what was that about, and what's the competition like there? Well, that's how I got on the World Trophy team. I mean, that's uh, the, I, the National Reliability Series was for the six-day qualifier six series is basically what it was. Okay. And those were events all over the country that you had to go to to qualify for the six-day teams, much like you have to do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only a certain number of slots open for Americans at six days. There was a selection process. They did it based on results. And so I went and rode that. I won my class at several events. I, I won a qualifier overall in post-Texas, which I'm very proud to say. I've got a qualify, you know, I won a six days qualifier overall as well. And I was in, you know, first or second in class at the other events that I rode and was selected for the team and won that championship. Uh, based upon uh, you know those results. You know, Scott, you see so many things out there riding through the countryside, riding in the desert, uh, and, and and there's obstacles of of all different types. You know, I had Rodney Smith on as a guest several months ago, and we were I thought it was him who had hit some kind of an animal during a race, but it it wasn't Rodney. It was actually you who hit an animal during a race, and uh, it, it's an interesting story. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'd like you to share that with the listeners and, and what happened there. So racing off-road, uh, one of the hazards is, you know, you're racing on open roads and and over great expanses. And so down in Baja, I don't know how many times I dodged cattle and trucks and cars and booby traps and dogs and everything else. It was just part of the game. I mean, it was... Actually, it was the thing that scared me the most because it was out of my control. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's kind of why I kind of got over racing in Baja at a certain point, although I kept going back. But 
you know, uh, those were part of the deal. The Roof of Africa rallying in 83, I was winning it overall and hit a dog in a village uh, mm. right before the finish of the first day and broke my wrist. I, I won the first day overall by 25 minutes. Could have easily won the whole thing if I could have ridden the next day, but I had a broken wrist. And, you know, that was really disappointing. And that was just a fluke deal. It was a lane under a bush right next to the trail when I came by and it jumped up and I clipped him and went down. But in uh, the 93, what you're referring to is the 93 uh, Nevada rally. Mm-hmm. One of the, the first time they'd held a, a full-scale rally in in uh, in the United States. I was coming into Caliente, Nevada in the second stage of the event. I was trying to make up time and uh, up near five flat, uh, coming down a road at about as fast as the bike would go. It, it would top out at right about 95 or 96 miles an hour. I mean, I was going as fast as it would go. Uh, a three cows stepped out on the trail in front of me. Three? Three. <laughs> and I got on the brakes as hard as I could, veered off to the side as much as I could. The first two passed in front of me, and I caught the third one right behind the right rear leg. And I don't know, I probably got it slowed down to around 70 or 75 when that happened. But when I hit it, that was it, and I ended up cartwheeling and spinning out and lying, ended up laying at the bottom of a tree, at the base of a tree, and bent the bike all up and everything, knocked the shit out of the cow, although didn't kill it. It was actually up and gone before I got up. <laughs> it was, uh, by the time I got my senses and realized I hadn't broken any bones, I had done, I had a big laceration in my wrist, but I hadn't broken any bones by the time I got up, picked up the bike and the front end was bent. The front end of the bike was bent so badly that I had to turn it all the way to the right just to go straight. So I had to have the bike all the way to the stops just to go straight and uh, had to ride it another 60 miles that way and replace the front end. So I don't know. I, that always scared me. And, and of course that translated over into Africa and, the things I did in Africa and all the different types of animals that we ran into there from camels to horses to ostriches to monkeys to every sort of uh, animal you can imagine imagine on those roads over there. And I think some of the most tense times I ever had was near the end of the 2005 Dakar rally. I had to sit on these roads at 80, 90 miles an hour with vegetation on both sides as tall as you could see and and go by there at 90 miles an hour and just off the side to be a herd of cattle or a bunch of monkeys or a bunch of, I don't know, just crazy stuff. I mean, animals scare me. They scare me to this day. Even when I'm out adventure riding, I always think a deer's about to jump out. I always, I just got all these fears, man. I sure. Hey, but it, there, there are other things. I mean, not only the animals, um, you, you're, an, you're an African rally champion. You rode the real Dakar rally twice. You were 49 years old in, in 2005 when you were just describing that other incident. Um, but there are other things that go on in these foreign countries that are life-threatening. Uh, things like booby traps, even terrorists. So, tell me about some of the things you encountered uh, with, with some of those things. Well, yeah, I mean, that's always a problem. <laughs> And so, so in the 87, uh, the rally that I ended up winning, the first rally I won in Tunisia in 1987, on the second day of the rally, uh, there was a major, everyone got lost. There was a major, 
navigation challenge. The whole rally got split up, and only three of us ended up finishing that day, finishing the special test that day. We finished about seven o'clock at night, and uh, then we had to ride 200 kilometers into the uh, bivouac in Zarsi on the on the Mediterranean coast. Only one light between the three bikes. So we gathered around the middle bike and we all rode together into Zarsi. Well, unbeknownst to us during the, the transfer section, we got off course. And the next thing I know, we came, we got to a highway and we got to an intersection. And I looked at the intersection and one way it pointed to Zarsi and it said it was uh, 150 kilometers that direction. Mm-hmm. And to the right, was Tripoli, <laughs> Libya, yeah. and, it was, and it was 30 kilometers away, which meant that we had crossed over into Libya unknowingly and were now in Libya. Oh. Now, this was October of 1987, and if, for those of you that know your history, know that the U.S. bombed Muammar Gaddafi's tent in Tripoli in July of that year, killing his daughter. And he had put out a fatwa on all of America, on every American, death to every American. I was in Libya two months after that happened, after the result of getting lost, and then had to ride out of there, crossing through five border checks, getting back into Tunisia. Fortunately, I had, uh, declined running an American flag on my helmet or on my jerseys as part of the event because I was a little concerned about becoming a target with that. Yeah. But had I had it on and I was down in Libya, I could have been part of a major international incident. I let the uh, other pilots do all the talking. They were French, and they did all the talking at the borders. I just sat in the back, and if they came to me, I just said I was Spanish. And I spoke enough Spanish to get by, but I let them do the talking. Anyway, we talked our way out of Libya, back into Tunisia. And as soon as I got back to the thing that night and realized what had happened, I was, you know, a cold sweat came over me because I realized just what a terrible situation I was in. But, I mean, I've traveled all over the world. I've been a lot of places in the Incas Rally in uh, 88 there were sections of the course that were bombed out. Bridges were bombed out by uh, Los Lumineros and Sidneros, the, the Red uh, Brigade that was down there, the terrorist group down there. We had to make sure not to ride across any of the bridges because most of them had been blown out. Uh, you know, in the Dakar rally in 2005, there were terrorist threats and everything, and eventually that's which is what led to the cancellation of Dakar in Africa because of terrorist threats. When I put together the teams for Dakar in 2004, 2005, I had to buy all sorts of insurance, including medical, repatriation, and insurance to have us released in case we were captured by terrorists. You can buy insurance for that. And there's actually groups of people that will come in and negotiate on your behalf to try to get you out. But when you sign off on a contract to an event that you're going, to buy insurance for your team Mm -hmm. in case you're captured by terrorists, that's when you know that you're not going to just another race. In Tunisia, there's the the Jerba 500. 
Um, yeah. You, it was was that this race? That's how you got off course during that race? Yes, it was during that race on the second day. Everybody spent the everybody else spent the night in the desert. Only the three of us made it. The other 150 riders all spent the night in the desert. And by the way, three of the Dutch pilots got so lost that that trip, they died of uh, prostration by the time they find him found him. It was 110 degrees during the rally, and three Dutch pilots died of uh, heat prostration. What, what are, you know, now that you're talking about that, Scott, what, what are some of the most extreme conditions you've ridden in, in one day? In other words, I mean, you may start off in the desert, you're at sea level, I don't know, maybe it's 110 degrees, but where does, where does it go from there? Have you ever, what were the most ex- two extreme weather conditions you've ever, ever raced in, in one day? Well, weather conditions, probably in Africa, we were in a, in a Habib, a Habib, uh, uh, one of the large desert sandstorms came up while we were there. That was pretty crazy. Uh, we had to hunker down and kind of let it blow over and then keep moving on. I think the longest day of my life I ever spent on a motorcycle was in the 2005 Dakar rally. What happened there? About, about the sixth or seventh day. So... You know, you start out in uh, Europe, you do a few stages in Europe for show and for the spectators and everything. And we started in Barcelona that year. So we spent two or three days in Spain, going down through Spain. Then we crossed over at the Straits of Gibraltar and into into Morocco. You get four or five days in Morocco. They progressively make them tougher and tougher. And then then there's a a major point in the event where you transition from Morocco into Mauritania. And these two countries are at war. So what they do on that day, and it's one of the longest days usually of the rally or when they did the rally back then. What they do is they start you at 1 o'clock in the morning, and you have to ride at night about 200 kilometers to get to the starting point of the special test where you're actually going to race. Now, when you go there, they tell you that you have to follow your roadbook, but they give you special notes to make sure that you stay between the smudge pots, these burning fire smudge bots yep. that they have lining the course. And the reason they tell you, and this is for about a 60-mile stretch, and the reason they tell you to stay between the smudge bots is because they swept that area for mines, and they know there's no mines there. So anything outside of the smudge pots, who knows? It's all, it's, there's no guarantee. So you have to focus. You have to stay between the switch boss. You have to do this navigation. It's it's open desert, so it's really hard to read the terrain. You never know if you're supposed to be on the right side or the left side of the switch spot. And you do this for 60 miles. When you get there, you get to a dry lake bed about 4 o'clock in the morning. And then you're given an hour or two to sleep. So you literally just get down on the ground, curl up in a ball, and rest. You get up and have your breakfast, and at sunlight... You present your documents to the army on the Moroccan side. They go through all your papers. They check you over. They can ask you anything they want. And then you ride through a trench that's also been swept to mines. And you present your papers to the Mauritania army on the other side. Now, they've agreed to a truce that day. So it's a ceasefire that day while the rally starts. So we're not involved in any shooting. After you've done all of that, one o'clock, you've ridden all the stuff, you dodged the mines, you've done everything, you slept on the ground. Then you start a special test that was close to 480 miles long. And it was all Hoyt Piste, as they say, off track. 
and literally you were just running cross country through the desert to Tajika. And that day was the longest day of my life. We had over 120 miles of camel grass. And anybody that's ridden in camel grass will know. What is that, Scott? You ride five miles in camel grass, you'll be cussing. What, Scott, what is camel grass? Tell me. 120 miles of camel grass was the most severe thing I've ever done. We ended up, only 19 of us finished that day. At the very end of the stage, you had to follow very specific waypoint guidance or you ended up going into a giant chasm that you would never get out of a giant depression in the earth that was impossible to get out of scott what i did that at nine o'clock at night after this whole thing explain to us what camel grass actually is so camel grass is where it's where it's tufts of grass that grow up in the desert they're all randomly spaced around the root structure the dirt gets very hardened around it. Mm -hmm. So the best way I can describe it is imagine stadium hoops, but they're not evenly spaced. They're randomly spaced. They're all over the place and they're carpeting the desert. And there's not more than five or 10 feet between them. So you cannot ride in a straight line. You cannot ride over them. Or if you hit one, it's an instant endo. They're peaked as hell. And so some of the smaller ones, you just hit and ride over and try to jump. The other ones, you have to ride around. In between the camera grass, the sand is very soft. So you're riding a 500-pound motorcycle in very soft sand conditions for hours on end. And I'm telling you, it's the camel grass, anybody that knows it's ridden in it before will attest that it's some of the toughest conditions in the world. Guys would bellyache if they rode. Some sections were considered extreme if you had to do 30 or 40 miles of that stuff. We did 120 miles that day. In, in 1988, Scott, you were hired by KTM uh, as the Western Regional Media Relations Manager. Now, I, I found this interesting because it sounds like a very important position where a guy sits in a posh office making some big decisions all day. But in that same year, you raced uh, the Incas Rally, which was 1,900 miles in Peru. You finished third. Uh, there was 2,500 miles the Rally the Atlas in Morocco, where you finished second. Uh, another 1,900 miles in San Marino. Um, where, unfortunately, you did have a DNF due to mechanical issues. You did that all in 45 days. I, I, you know, you talk about monkey butt or uh, I don't understand how the, the, the nice job of Western regional media relations guy is out there racing 6,000 miles in desert races. Uh, to, <laughs> so, well, you know, it was kind of my swan song. To, I went and did rallies in 87 and 88 with Danny Laporte was my teammate. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to be the first Americans to win Dakar. So we went over and did all of these smaller rallies on smaller teams to try to get attention. Danny had some challenges. He had some physical challenges. He got sick one time, meningitis while we were over there. He crashed out of an event. He, he struggled there during that period. Uh, but uh, he and I were a team, and we, we were trying to go and get a ride in a factory to car team. At the end of that period, after winning it, I, in the first four rallies I rode, I got first, second, and third. Out of the four of them, I was on the podium three times. I still couldn't get a factory ride. That's when I decided, you know, it's too political. I'm not French. I'm not Italian. I'm not going to get one of the factory seats. I'm just going to go back home and get a job 
and uh, remember I had a family, two small children. Sure. I was gone for months on end doing this stuff, racing very dangerous races. That uh, Cush uh, uh, desk job that you're talking about seemed uh, like a really good uh, <laughs> choice at that time. I bet. So those three rallies I did, I was contracted to do them. And that went, took me through the first part of July, and then in the middle of July, I started my career with KTM. And as Western Region Sales Manager and Media Relation Manager, and then that's where I stayed for the next 20 years. Now, you, you also there, you worked closely with Rod Bush. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little more about Rod, because he's a very interesting person, and I'd, I'd like the listeners to, to know more about him. Well, I mean, Rod, I mean, we would need a whole show to talk I, I about I know. I, <laughs> I think... Uh, do what you can. Uh, do what you can, Scott. Tell us a little bit about know, Rod. I, I don't know. If Rod, uh, he changed my life. Uh, he was one of those guys. He was from West... First of all, you have to know about Rod. He's from West Virginia. Yeah. So he's he's about as basic as it gets. Um, he, he didn't have a college education, but he was one of the smartest guys I ever met in my life. And he had a lot of common sense, but most important of all, he was loyal. He was fiercely loyal. He was dedicated. He was committed. He took care of his people. He understood the big picture, but he never let the big picture get in the way of making sure that the personal details were taken care of relationships with people. I, uh, the guy was uh, one in a million. I was blessed to know the man and work with him. And together, you know, he and I, he was president, I was vice president of KTM. We led the company through a bankruptcy here in America. Mm -hmm. We started with Stefan Peer and the new group and helped them develop it. You know, Rod and I uh, sold the factory on the 300cc toe stroke. That was our idea to bring to market. Rod and I brought that model to market. And now you can't think of racing without a 300 now. Right. That's it's the most popular bike in all of racing. When we told the factory we wanted to make it, they said we were stupid. Nobody would buy it. It wasn't a 250. It wasn't an open bike. What class was it going to fit in? Mm. They didn't understand bet class racing, trail riding, and all the other stuff we did over here. We did. The, they said, we'll build it for one year and see what happens. That was in 1990. And he said, they said, besides, none of the European distributors want that bike. They won't even buy it. Well, flash forward, by the end of the 90s, it was the single best-selling full-size motorcycle KTM had ever made. Yeah. 302 stroke, and that was Rod Bush and Scott Harden who, who championed that bike. We also championed the Sport Mini line. We developed that whole line for KTM, including the first prototypes and bringing that to market, and then I developed and created the KTM Junior Supercross Challenge to kind of promote it and promote KTM through that period. So that was a, a big plus for us. All of this stuff was designed to grow the company. Meanwhile, Pierre continued to take the money he was making and investing it back into product, which is what KTM has done ever since. They continue to invest in product, developing the product, giving the customers reason to buy. The whole niche marketing uh, strategy we developed, even the color orange, we were part of the decision. Rod and I were part of the decision to help change the color to orange. And it was there were meetings that were held every year where we beat each other over the decal that went on the bike. Yeah. What kind of decal we were putting on it. We said, do you realize our whole brand identities in a dollar thirty cent decal? We need to stake out a primary color. We fought for orange. So there was a lot of work that we did back then that fundamentally uh, changed the, the brand and the company. And uh, But Rod 
was he was responsible for all of that. He was the guy that led that. He was the guy that brought all the people together, all the different uh, personalities, all of the different knowledge, experience levels and, 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 and abilities and skills. And he was the guy that stood between all the pressure of the factory and that he was getting from the factory because of the growth that we were developing and what was happening here in the States. I mean, I can't say enough about Ron Bush. He's, uh, he, he's an amazing, amazing man. He changed the course of not only my life, but many people's lives. Yes. And anybody who worked for him would go to the mat for that guy. I, I, and, and KTM wouldn't be what it is today without him. Well, it's that simple. Scott, you, you mentioned that you and Rod, of course, took KTM out of bankruptcy. I mean, where do you begin with a company like that to make them solvent again? Today, today they're like 12% of the market in, in Europe, 10% of the market they hold in, in America. But where do you begin uh, to pull a company back out of that uh, to make them solvent again? Where did you, where did you start? Just well, with the rebranding? I mean, where did... When Rod Wish became president in 1988, they hired him because the previous president was failing him. Failing in America, it was about an $8 million a year business mm -hmm. in America. When we got done in 20, 2005, it was around a $300 million a year business. And what had happened at the factory through 80, 89, and 90 after Mr. Trunkenpulse had sold the controlling interest in the company, the T and KT. Yes. After he sold the controlling interest to a company named, uh, to a holding company named GIT Trust Holding. Remember at the time, KTM was not only a motorcycle manufacturer, it was a bicycle manufacturer, and they just brought on the radiator division as well. They were making radiators. The only people that, the only thing the people at GIT Trust Holding understood was bicycles. <laughs> Their strategy was to grow the bicycle business into a huge, they were going to take it from 50,000 units a year to 600,000 units in one year's time. And they invested all of the money in bicycles. And uh, uh, we went over there on factory visits in the winter of uh, 1991. And there were tents set up all over the factory where they were having to house all the bicycles, the overproduction of bicycles that they had done that they couldn't sell that were just, they had to house them somewhere to keep them out of the, the rain and the snow. And they were everywhere. There were tents everywhere. We knew there was a problem. By the end of 91, they were starting to default on some payments due. They were getting further and further behind on payments that they owed. And then on the right after Thanksgiving of 91, Rod called me and said, I've just been told the factories in Chapter 11 or Chapter 13, I forget which. And uh, I said, so what's that mean? He says, I don't know. But uh, as a precaution, I took. he said, you should take everything home that you own out of your office today, just in case when you show up tomorrow, the keys don't work anymore. Hmm. And we'll just keep working through this. We had to let everybody go that was not essential in the company here in America. But fortunately in America, we had a large stock of motorcycles, 92 models that were already in stock. We had a huge stock of parts and it was Jarrod's and my job as the two main salesmen in the company to try to keep the dealers together and not let them get afraid that things weren't going to fall apart. Meanwhile, we knew behind the scenes that a group of distributors led by Stefan Peer and Heinz Kindergartner 
were working on a plan to purchase the factory, which they did for literally 18 or 15 cents on the dollar. Uh, a factory that was already in production that never really lost any production. A factory that had a fairly good chain, although it wasn't the juggernaut it is now. It still had a fairly stable market. The problem wasn't being created by the motorcycle division. It was being created by some of these other silly things that they had gotten involved in. And we started from there. And with the clean slate from 92, 93, 94, 95, we slowly built the sales back up. And then really the breakthrough year was when we went to the PDS system and uh, the bikes went orange in 97 and 98. And then the real breakthrough came with the racing four-stroke model in 2000, which was built, by the way, using the two best dynos that were available at the time. And Mr. Peer himself took me down to show me the, the dynos that they just installed. He was very proud of them because they were the next generation beyond what BMW had. Mm. And that built the first racing four-stroke. And that's where real technology was being applied to the development of motorcycles. Before then, all the testing, when they built a prototype, they would just take it out to the tracks, the test riders would ride it, they'd go, what do you think? No, what do you think? Well, what do you think? <laughs> oh, let's go put some more hours on, see how it holds on. They would do that. Well, they continued to do that. But with the new dyno that they had to develop the racing four-stroke, they could also take that same bike, plug it into that dyno, download the tele telemetry from the track they'd just ridden, plug it into the computer system, turn the thing on, and literally let that bike ride that track with all the load factors, shift points, braking, suspension, everything going on on that bike, literally turn it, turn it on on a Friday night and come back on Monday morning and see if it was still running. And they did that? And they did that. They could take a bike and let it go wide open on Friday night and come back on Monday morning and see if it was still open, running. They could get more data and more real-world experience through those through those dynos that they had invested in than they could in months worth of testing. And that's why when KCM came out with the racing four-stroke motor in 2000, it was so good right from the start. It worked. It was lightweight. It started. There weren't many technical issues. It was reliable. All the things that they, you needed out of the bike at that time, it worked. And it's that same mentality that's led KTM to where it is now. And the fact that they, instead of the Japanese, where they go on three, four, or five-year uh, model runs and then come out with a new model, KTM's doing it every two years, two and a half years. Yeah. In, in 95, Scott, you were responsible for introducing the Mini Line, as you mentioned just a moment ago, uh, along with the Supercross Mini Challenge. That was one of the biggest sales growth spurts that company had ever seen. But today, with the video games and the advent of the cell phone, I don't think it's helping helping our cause. What do you think uh, some of the things that we need to do as enthusiasts to get people more involved, especially the kids, in, in the off-road riding? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, if I had the answer, I could probably sell it and make a lot of money because industry, our industry needs it desperately right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I shared with you, Joe, that I founded the Plus One Rider Initiative yeah. a few years ago with the support of the AMA to try to bring new riders to the sport. Now, my, my initiative is really based upon existing riders, motivating uh, and exciting existing riders uh, to, to bring new riders in. I think the solution lies within. We need to take all of us that are already currently in the sport. 
we need to become more proactive. We need to become more vocal. We need to become, uh, we need to do things, specific things to go out and reach out to that next generation and bring it in, whether it's your own children, your, your neighbor's children, uh, your friends, children, your coworkers at work. We need to set the example to bring that next generation along. I think if we did, we could have a big impact there. But right now we're facing social uh, changes in social mores and, and the way that uh, the younger generation is being brought up that are challenging as, as all hell. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's become too easy. The generation that we're creating, quite frankly, is leading to what we just have seen the last few months. Mm. That's a scary thought. It is. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I always like to think, God, if those people that are out protesting, if they just had a motorcycle in their life at some point, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be so angry. You know, they would, <laughs> we wouldn't quite have the problems that we do. Um, and so we have huge challenges, and this is why I'm very vocal about it. I think the AMA, certainly the MIC, uh, need to come together, and they need to be more proactive than they currently are as far as going out and trying to lead the way. I think we need to have active campaigns to go out there and market motorcycling to the public at large. We're still waiting for that from the MIC. I think we need to have uh, a, a blueprint that we can follow that much like the Go RVing program that's out there that the RV industry does. They do a tremendous job with that and they've done it since for over 20 years. They've lowered the average age of the average RV owner from close to 50 to almost 40. And that's because they aggressively market RVs to a wide range of demographics. Old, not just old people, but young people, young couples starting out, you know, at all price points. They do a great job at that. We suck in motorcycling. We are not doing that. We're not doing it near to the level we need to do that. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's our biggest downfall. Back when I did the KTM Junior Supercross Challenge, motorcycling was cool and parents were looking, you know, it was a great path forward. But that was 20, gosh, that's almost 20 what, years yeah. ago, 25 years ago now. Yes. It's a different generation. It's a completely different uh, game out there. And I'm really fearful for what that means for motorcycling, uh, the future of motorcycling. Um, but, you know, I still believe that, 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 if existing motorcyclists, if we took the responsibility on ourselves, if we just got more vocal about it, and we didn't just absorb, you know, self-absorb, if we didn't just, hey, I'm just going riding this weekend, if we went and tried to bring other people in, we would change this whole thing. Well, yeah, you know, Scott, um, let me say this. I, you remember the old days when it was really exciting to first begin seeing uh, commercials on television whether it was uh, Yamaha, today is the day, or you meet the nicest people on a Honda, or whatever it was. The manufacturers back then uh, made it look like a fun, family-oriented thing. You don't see anything on television about that anymore. You don't see fathers and sons sitting around a campfire with a mini trail. So is it part of the advertising? Do you think somebody needs to get back in there and, and, and take a different approach, like maybe the RV companies did? Absolutely. I mean, get grief. It's not like we're trying to force them to take up, uh, um, you know, what's painful. What's uh, we've got motorcycling to sell. I mean, how hard is that? 
how you know I understand that there's negative connotations about motorcycles and stuff, but I mean it's fun, it's healthy, it's athletic. Yes, it's outdoors. In this day and age, getting outdoors, we have all of these advantages to sell, and we're just doing a horrible. Our industry's doing a horrible job of it. They talk about it a lot. There's a lot of uh, you know we're going to do this, we're going to study that, but I don't see the actual rubber hitting the road when it comes to actual campaigns yeah. designed to, to grow motorcycling. And they should be done at the national level. I believe that uh, every dealer and every manufacturer would easily contribute $5 for every motorcycle sold towards a national campaign, new motorcycles sold towards a national campaign. That'd be a, easily $2 million to $4 million right now that they would have to use in a war chest to, 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 to start putting something together. With two to four million dollars, give it to me. I'll make an impact. I'll, I'll put a dent in it. We'll put it. We'll 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 let people know we're here. Somebody somebody could do that with it, but but we don't. We 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 keep. We're too limited. We're too politically. We want to be politically correct. We're 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 kind of throwing in the towel on it. And I'm sure you know people at the MIC and the AMA will say, "Wait a minute, we're doing all we can," and they are. They're doing a lot of good things. I don't want to diminished that there's a lot of great work being done i just would like to see more done i would like to see us out there promoting motorcycling a lot harder than we are yeah and and you know what scott you've always been an advocate of that too which kind of leads me in, into my into my next little group of questions here in 1998 you received the ama hazel kolb brighter image award for a project that you did in south america along with national geographic to promote motorcycling, even there. Um, it's, it's given to a person that organizes every year who generates good publicity in the motorcycle industry. So when you talk about putting a war chest together and getting out there and doing something to give the motorcycle industry a more positive look and, and to get more people involved, you certainly, you certainly know what you're talking about. You know, And you, you were the recipient of that along with, with Malcolm Smith and Lyle Lovett. In 98, you were named uh, one of the top 10 best desert racers by Desert, uh, I'm sorry, Dirt Rider Magazine, one of the top 10 desert racers in the history of the sport you've been inducted. Actually, it was off-road riders. Off-road yeah. riders, I'm sorry. So when, when I, what I'm, why I jumped into that question was, for the listeners, Scott is very, very active in that and, and knows so much about it. And uh, it, it would be really great if, uh, if there were a way to get, to get around that. Tell me more about this National Geographic uh, thing where, where you promoted racing or riding in South America. Yeah, you know, it was an interesting project. Microsoft actually funded it at the time. They had developed this new technology, which most people will laugh at today. But they had this new technology that they wanted to show off. They were going to be able to file stories and load photos to their website from any remote place in the world. They created a special site called Mungo Park for it. And they were gonna be able to do this revolutionary thing to post videos and stories from anywhere in the world about any subject they wanted. So they put this thing together where they contacted me and then I suggested we invite Lyle and, and and Malcolm to join us for just for to get more eyeballs on it. Uh -huh. We were going to ride bikes from Santiago to the end of the Pan American Highway, right down into Patagonia. So I was with my connection in KTM. I was able to get KTM supplied 
We ended up flying into Santiago. We actually started down in Valdivia, but it was going to be filmed by National Geographic. The all-time tree hugger organization yeah. was going to film a thing on motorcycling to promote motorcycling. Mm-hmm. Boyd Matson was the was the celeb was the on-air guy. Boyd Matson back in 1998 was on NBC regularly, and one of their contributors and one of their reporters and we had it was it was really done top flight they spent a lot of money on it and uh, so we flew down there and did it unfortunately boyd was supposed to ride with us crashed and broke his uh, wrist the first day which was no surprise but malcolm and lyle and i rode the next few days had a great adventure we rode a little bit each day we stayed in little hotels and motels along the way and they filmed it and they turned it into an hour-long story that aired on National Geographic and uh, you know I was really proud of it because we again we'd broken through to a fairly conservative fairly I should say conservative but fairly liberal fairly environmentally oriented organization yes uh, motorcycling displayed on and it was seen by a lot of people and the AMA recognized it and uh, gave us each the award which I mean I was happy for but it wasn't necessary but uh you know, we were able to do that. It was a, just a great experience. I learned then the power of media and just what could be done is just uh, getting the right ingredients put together. Yeah. Well, the the, the Hazel Colbrider Image Award, there was that. Of course, the, the Dirt Rider Top 10. The AMA Bessie Stringfield Award for continued support and promotion of the sport of motorcycling. In, in 2014, you received the AMA's New Horizon Award all for promoting new segments of motorcycling through electric motorcycles. You were recently inducted into the Trailblazers Hall of Fame. I mean, Scott, that's, that's an incredible list of awards. Of those six, which one really means the most to you and why? Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, that's hard to, I mean, uh, it's really hard to say. I mean, I mean. You don't have, you know, Scott, it, it would be hard to answer because you've done so, so much. You asked me which of my kids do I love the most? I mean, <laughs> do I love the most? You know, I, I, here's how I look at it. I mean, I just, I've been very fortunate and very blessed. You know, I was engaged in a very dangerous sport for over 40 years. Yes. You know, I've seen many people come through it that were killed, paralyzed, you know, suffered gruesome injuries, injuries. And most people only had five or 10 years in the sport and were out. I did it for 40. And on top of that, I got to, to pursue a career in motorcycling and got to be involved with some pretty cool companies and, and influence the direction of some pretty iconic brands and meet some just unbelievable people through the process. Uh, not only with, you know, but all the people, Chris, guys like Chris Carter and uh, I, uh, the list just goes on and on. People I've met through this whole thing. So the biggest reward for me through this whole thing has just been the fact that I'm still here. And in one piece, I'm still riding all the time. And it's probably sitting in the other room right now. My grandson, who's yeah. sitting over there, that comes and visits on the weekend. I have two beautiful grandsons and my my two sons who ride and with me, and we've raced together. And my wife. I mean, that's those are the best rewards that I've gotten out of this whole thing. The rest of it's been just kind of gravy. You know, I I, I do think that. You know, I've been given kind of a bit of a platform and a bit of a position, and I think it's important that we, all of us that's been blessed like this try to give back and try to do as much as we can. 
to keep the sport going. My fear is is that you know, 40 years from now, somebody's going to say off-road racing, the Baja 1000. Oh, I read about that in a history book. Yeah. You know, they don't do that. We're not allowed to do that anymore. You know, that's now called conspicuous consumption of, of, of limited resources. You're degradating the environment. Uh, yeah, that was that was back then. That's that's frowned on now. We're getting, we're tearing down statues of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm serious. I think you, we can all see this. I think the sport that we all love and the, and the legends and heroes that made it up, that sacrificed it, and, and, and did some really cool things through it, you know, if there's a chance that it's all going to go away. You know, I'm on the board of directors of the AMA Hall of Fame Museum. I'm so passionate about the fact that when I walk through that hall and I see all those names in there and, you know, the people that, you know, really – had an impact on, on a whole way of life and this this industry and sport. I mean, you know, what if that just goes away? What if that's not there anymore? What if this show doesn't exist anymore because nobody cares, gives a crap? I mean, right. there's just so much to it. I, I don't know. I, I, anybody that's listening to this show today, I just hope that they understand that they all have a role to play in this and that we're all doing this together and, we all need to do our best to keep motorcycling, especially the sport of it, the off-road side of it, motocross side of it. And, we need to keep this thing going. And and you're you're doing it hands-on, Scott. Tell tell me about the the Nevada 200 trail ride and what exactly is Harden off-road? Well, I started the Nevada 200 trail ride in 1985 with my good friend Casey Folks. Mm-hmm. It was originally just an excuse for the two of us to get together put a day on the calendar every year where we would get together and ride because I moved away from Vegas. He, I grew up in his house. He was my best friend. I was no longer living in, Cal- in Nevada. Couldn't ride with him regularly like we used to, like we started out with. We created the event to have that camaraderie and fellowship. We invited a few friends, started out with 20, grew to 40, grew to 80, grew to 200. We stopped it at that. No more. We did it for 35 years. It's an it's a trail ride open to the public. We do it in northeastern Nevada, fully catered. Motion Pro is the title sponsor of it. Chris and the crew come up and support us every year. Climb, Rocky Mountain ATV, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Beta, Sea Concepts are all our big sponsors of the event. But it's just about fun and fellowship off-road. A lot of bench racing, great trails. You know, we just show up we take we cater we feed feed everybody we have a great time that event takes that event takes place when and is it by invitation only well it's not invitation only it takes place in april every year we had to postpone this year's event till october so Mm -hmm. it's coming up in october but it'll it'll, the 2021 event will be back in april again but it's kind of a labor of love and you know we've helped create a trail network up there about close to three thousand miles of trail it's all in the BLM registry. We've, again, uh, you know, try to get back to the local communities. And, I don't know, it's just a lot of fun. It's just a lot of fun. We invite anybody to come up and ride with us. It's a great group of guys. And it's all for a good cause, and it's mainly just to have fun. But that and Hard Enough Road is my consulting company. It's been in business since 1985. I use it for all of my side projects. Now it's full-time. I do special projects for different manufacturers, aftermarket. I've got 35 years, 40 years of experience in the industry. Mm-hmm. 
in marketing, communications, uh, strategic uh, planning, uh, all of that racing. My, you know, I'm fully you know, right now. Best in the deserts. My number one client. I'm heavily involved with that series, growing it and helping that thing stay. You know, go go. It, it is doing phenomenal right now. It's 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 just just going through the roof again. My good friend Casey Polk started the the organization. It's the number one off road racing organization in North America. We have huge turnouts at our events. And uh, we do a lot for the sport through it and try to give back as much as we can. So, And, and, and Scott, you know, I noticed, too, in my research, you're, you're still very progressive in a sense of that you're, you're, you're very involved with, with electric bikes, too. You had a big, uh, a big part with the Zero, the Zero motorcycles. Um, you, you're an exceptionally successful at, at marketing and seeing trends. So where do you see this electric motorcycle market going and... Do you think that the the off road crowd or the motocross crowd will ever fully embrace that? Well, <laughs> good question. And believe me, I've heard every objection to electric motorcycles that you can imagine. And uh, I took a lot of flack. Interestingly enough, when I joined, I signed up as VP of Global Marketing for them back in 2010. Almost people looked at me like I was a traitor or something. How dare you <laughs> join that crowd? But, you know, my feeling on that is this, is that I'm all about motorcycles. And I don't care if they're powered by fossil fuels, electricity, hydrogen, rubber bands. I don't care. <laughs> sure. As long as it's got a two wheels and a throttle, and it gives me that freedom and adventure and, and excitement that I get from it, you know, I'm all for it. The more, the better. Now, electric motorcycles and electric-powered vehicles in general have a huge challenge. You know, forget about the environmental part about it. Forget about you're saving the planet. Forget about all of these things. I wrote op-eds on this, about this. You're not buying it for that reason. Ride one and decide if it's the right bike for you simply based on the experience it provides you. Does it satisfy your the, the, the acceleration that you want from the bike mm -hmm. does it excite your mind when you ride it do you get that sense of freedom and adventure when you climb on that bike do you think about it when you're not riding it and wished you were riding it all the things that you do with the normal motorcycle if it does it for you then get one the challenges of electric right now are three things it still comes down to range recharge times and costs you pay a huge premium for the bikes there's no question about it right now. The range is still an issue, and, and both on and off-road. The state-of-the-art bikes, the zero motorcycles, with all the extra batteries you can buy and everything on it, on highway at 75 miles an hour, have about an 80-mile range, and that's it. Yeah. And then you have to recharge, and that's going to take you, depending upon what you have access to, it's going to take you hours to do to recharge those bikes. So that's a problem. The smaller bikes, the off-road models, well, it's even more restrictive. The FX models, if you get them up on the freeway at 75 miles an hour, you're going to go maybe 30 miles. Now, off-road riding, yes, maybe you can go an hour. It all depends on how hard you ride the terrain and everything. You get on a motocross track, maybe 20, 25 minutes, and it's done. So that's where the problem comes in. They're great for short rides. Honey, I'm going to be gone for a couple of hours and be right back. 
trips down to the local market, commuting, mm-hmm. all of those things, they make a tremendous amount of sense. And they work good. And trust me, 140 foot, 25 foot pounds of torque. That's enough. Uh, is a beautiful thing to behold and yeah. experience when you get on one. No vibration, no sound, the effortless feel. There's all sorts of things. But the problem is for them to break through and to become truly mainstream, there's a lot of work left to be done. All of the manufacturers that are involved in that market are bleeding money as a result. Mm. Zero is probably burning through 25 to $30 million a year. That's what they're doing to keep that product in place. So that's, that's the challenge. It hasn't reached Main Street market acceptance. On the other end of the equation, down at the smaller side, when you get down to kids' bikes, and here's where electric really works, is in mini bikes, small bikes, entry-level bikes. My uh, youngest son, Brock, is, was the second employee at Stasic. He's responsible for all of their demo programs and all of the event programs they do. Stasic's the little stability uh, BMX bike with the electric yeah, motor. Yeah, I, sure I, I saw a few commercials it. for it during the last uh, Supercrosses. Yeah, well, that's my son. He does the intermission. He's doing the intermission program at that event. Talk about paying it forward. His dad did the KTM Junior Supercross Challenge. Now he's doing the same program for electric kids. Really proud of him. But when you look at it, my grandson Jensen, he's got a Stasic. He's been riding it since he's two years old. He can ride it anywhere. No sound, no hassle. The neighbors don't complain. This is a key, you know, this in. Now KTM and Husky have little electric 50s or equivalent to 50s. Electric's going to help us bring that next generation in. It's going to give us more opportunities, more, a lot more stuff. It's just that, um, you know, it, it serves a purpose. But until there's a major breakthrough in inter- uh, battery chemistry, the next generation comes along on the full-size motorcycle side. I still think there's a lot of work to be done, and it's not going to appeal to the mainstream market the way it's currently configured. My guest this morning has been Scott Harden. Scott, uh, it, it just goes by so quickly. Uh, it, it, it really, really does. And uh, I'd like to sit down with you again at some point. And if there's anything else that's on your mind this morning, uh, we, we talked about the Plus One Rider Initiative. We talked about a lot of different things. But if there's anything else in closing right now that you'd like to touch upon, I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about it. Well, I mean, we talked about a wide range of things, and I feel like I've just been blabbing on here. But, you know, I've, I really like, first of all, thanks for asking me to be on, Joe. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, you're doing a great job with this uh, podcast. It's great. You know, I think we need to honor the heroes and legends of the, of the past and the things that they've done to get us to this point, but also talk about real issues about the sport and where it's at and what it's going to take to move us forward. So I'm really, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity to do that. I would just tell anybody that's listening that remember, you know, this problem that we have with uh, bringing new people in the sport, you know, you have a role in, in, in providing the solution and you can do it. You know, there's no better spokesperson for what we're doing as motorcyclists than current motorcyclists. Yes. We get it. We understand it. Reach out to somebody. Go out of your way to kind of mention it to your coworker what you're doing this weekend you know i've given a whole list of things uh that you can do the tips that you can do to you know kind of uh bring bring the conversation up 
I've done it with the AMA, and I've got them on my website. Uh, visit my website. There's a lot of great stories on there. In my roadbook section, I'm just getting ready to add a lot more. I write a regular column for dealer news and regularly for Upshift as well. So there's a lot of great information there. But I just want to encourage everybody to do your part, you know, to keep our sport alive and to keep it growing and everything. And hopefully I'll see you guys out on the trail somewhere. We hope so. Once again, Scott Harden, thank you so much for being my guest today on Vintage Motocross Radio. All right, Joe. Take care. You too. I thought that was a fascinating conversation with Scott. Uh, such a multifaceted motorcycle enthusiast uh, from off-road to... I didn't even get a chance to talk to him about his, his Pikes Peak events and some other things that he's done. But I hope you enjoyed my interview this morning with Scott Harden. I want to thank Amsoil, the first in synthetic since 1973. Preston Petty, the legend continues. Of course, Vintage Motocross Q&A. Please join us this Wednesday for another live show there and Vinco. Keep the ride going. This is Joe Abadi. I want to thank everyone for listening. You have a great day.